0: Warning, the sign began. Falls from cliffs on this trail have resulted in deaths. Stay on trail. Stay back from cliff edges. Observe posted warnings. Parents, watch your children. One sign said that. Another sign said people die falling from the cliffs on this route. Angels landing is a strenuous climb on a narrow ridge over 1,400 feet above the canyon floor. This route is not recommended during high wind storms or if snow or ice is present, end quote. Beloved, there are some warnings in life that one ought not ignore. There may be some that one can ignore. I don't know if they still have them, but they used to have on, I think, pillows and mattresses, little warning labels saying, don't remove these. I think even at times under the penalty of law, I never quite understood that. It's my mattress. It's my pillow. If I want to take the little thing off, I'll I'll do it. I mean, not that I ever would. but. But, beloved, again, there's some you may ignore, some you may not. One thing we know is when God gives a warning, you ought not ignore it. Beloved, please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Beloved, the book of Hebrews, this magnificent sermonic epistle, begins in a most powerful way perhaps more so than any other book in the new testament other than perhaps the exception of the gospel according to John. What's interesting, in chapter 1, in the 14 verses there, there are no commands, there are no exhortations, explicit commands, explicit exhortations. There is only declaration, declaration of the all-superiority and supremacy and wonder and majesty and dignity of the Son, of Jesus Christ. Christ, the person and work of Christ. He is creator. He is the inheritor. He is the heir of all things that he has created. What he, who he is, first and foremost, and what he has done, his lordship, his sonship, his worship, his authority, his eternality, his immutability, his ultimate victory, his ultimate victory over Satan and the supernatural forces of darkness, over sin, all for his glory. And it's interesting as we consider that that opening chapter contained no commands. It might even Draw our minds to many of the writings of the Apostle Paul. For example, Ephesians 1 through 3, where there's only one command in the first half of the book. And then there's multiple commands in the latter part of the book. But what we know is even in portions of Scripture where God doesn't give a direct exhortation or command, we understand that all of Scripture demands a response. Uh, Sometimes it is explicit, and that is precisely what we find here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Our passage this morning, beloved, is the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and it is namely the demand for a response based on all the rich, deep, doctrinal discourse of chapter 1 surrounding the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Beloved, hear the word of God as I read Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will." Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we see in these incredible four verses, in this portion of Scripture, the author, pastor, preacher of this book gives first, he sounds a critical warning. He sounds a critical warning. Then he follows that with a crucial question. And then finally, he gives a credible confirmation. And the reason why he's doing this is because he understands the frailty of. Humans, Even new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are in this body of death. We have a new inner man or a new inner woman. But like the Apostle Paul says, we are trapped in this body of death. We deal not just with supernatural forces of darkness, not just with the temptations and the oppression and sometimes persecution of the world, but our own flesh. And so because of that, he knows we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. We need to have the take our heart and seal it and seal it for his courts above that is the intent of why he first sounds a critical warning in verse 1 now having said that this is the first of either 5 or 6 great warnings in this book I haven't yet decided if there's five or six. By the time I get to the end, I'll have decided and tell you that I think there's either five or six, but there are five or six great warnings in the book of Hebrews, interjections, interludes, where the author seemingly almost interrupts his train of thought to give a strong exhortation away from a certain behavior. They are, these warnings are literary guideposts even as we walk through the book. And by way of reminder, in chapter 1 in chapter 1 beginning in verse 4 all the way through chapter 2 the end verse 18 the author spends an inordinate amount of time dealing with the topic of angels a huge portion of the this entire book and the opening two chapters is dedicated towards angels and the reason is there's a specific purpose for that something is wrong uh, we know that there was confusion rather than clarity. There was some kind of spiritual entropy, a theological second law of thermodynamics that had entered into the minds of this wonderful group of Hellenistic Jewish believers. That the author is writing to in general, and a pull, a temptation for them to go back to their old legalistic way of ritual salvation and to depart from the gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone in general. But in particular, there is some kind of problem and situation around angels. That is why the author does what he does. Now, this portion we have here, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is this brief interlude. It's a parenthetical statement. In fact, our passage here is one of the rare occasions where we are addressing a portion that has, doesn't have any Old Testament quote, doesn't have a direct quote from the Bible. And the situation is into the morass of confusion that the audience had around angels. This loving pastor gives a strong warning, a warning with teeth. This is the first glimpse we have as we began in chapter 1, verse 1 through here of the tender heart that this author and preacher and pastor has for his audience. He loves them. And in the same way, you parents, train your children and give your children warning. Don't cross the street without looking both ways because you love your child. So also, the author of Hebrews has a tender heart towards his audience. Hence, he gives a strong warning. Now, in the New American Standard, you'll see verse 1 of chapter 2 begin with the words, for this reason. If you have an English Standard Version, you'll see the word, therefore. I think the therefore is actually a little better. The the idea is that this therefore alerts us that an application is coming. The definitive revelation of chapter 1 is now being followed by a needed correction. And he's saying here is the application of the great truths about Christ. Here it comes. Here's the application. Here's what you take home. And what he says is for this reason we must pay much closer attention must pay much closer attention five words in the english one word in the greek now it's interesting when we study the bible in both the old testament and the new testament you will see that seagoing nautical illustrations are rather rare, Uh, not as much as, for example, agricultural illustrations, because the nation of Israel, especially in the biblical times, wasn't a seagoing nation. That's why we don't encounter these very often. However, in these four verses, the author of Hebrew three times uses different words that are taken from seafaring nautical situation. And so when he says we must pay much closer attention, that one Greek term is a nautical term that described bringing a ship to land and mooring and dropping the anchor. The idea being that when the ship is tied to the dock or when the anchor is dropped, the ship is fixed and secure where it should be and not able to drift away and into danger. And again, Israel wasn't a seagoing nation like the rabbi who said God promised Israel a land, not a sea. That is what the author is doing here. But he says we must pay much closer attention. We must be tied to. We must have our anchor dropped on what? Look at the text. What we have heard. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He's drawing the minds and the hearts and the attention back to the gospel that saved them in the first place. Back to a right understanding of the Bible that they had in their hands at the time, which would be what we have as the Old Testament. And what he is saying here is by paying much closer attention to what you have heard, he's saying you must listen. Listen. Think back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the point there is the author begins by saying God has spoken. He's spoken in various and sundry ways in the past, but now he has spoken finally, supremely. The final word, God has spoken in his Son. And the idea is, since God has spoken, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, man must listen. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, a speaking God demands to be heard. And, in fact, the first necessary step of obedience is to hear, is to listen. Uh, We can think the teaching, the commands, the exhortation of Jesus, let he who has ears to hear, let she who has ears to hear, hear. That was a command that Christ gave perhaps more often than any other. This is the first step of obedience. And of course, when he says hear, when he says listen, he's not merely describing allow the acoustic waves to travel down your ear channel, vibrate your eardrum, and fire off the synapses that go into the nerves of your brain. No, it's not just the mere act of listening with the ear. It is listening, hearing, understanding, obeying, and owning all that he commands us to keep. Beloved, Right here at the beginning, the author reminds us that we can trust the word of God. We must trust the word of God. We must not neglect it. We must study it and obey it. We need to read it, study it, meditate upon it like a cow chewing on its cud. We are to memorize it. We're to teach it and preach it. Now, that doesn't mean every single person will come up and preach from this pulpit or preach or teach in a platform here. But every believer, you dear mothers need to preach and teach the word of God to your children. You need to preach and teach the word of God to declare the message of man's sinfulness, God's holiness, and the way of escape through Christ to your co-worker, neighbor, family member, and friend. We are to sing it, even as we sing the rich theology of the lyrics in this morning case of the hymns that we sang. That is all part of being obedient to what God would have us do with his word, with that which we have heard in the gospel, in the word of God. Now, here comes the warning. Here comes the warning, and as I indicated even at the beginning, when we come to warnings in Scripture, we understand that they are there because we need to hear it. There are no frivolous warnings in Scripture. There's no mattress tag warnings in Scripture. There are no The boy who cried wolf warnings in the Bible. It is there because we all need it. Now, the particular way and nuance and application may be different or slightly different than the original audience. But it is there so it is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, training, for reproof, and for correction. And necessary for us. And the reason here is because... We have, even as new creatures in Christ Jesus, by virtue of our battle against this body of death and flesh, we still have an innate tendency to drift, to drift away. That's why he says at the end of verse 1, lest we drift away lest we drift away from it. This is a second nautical word here, like a ship drifting without anchorage, like the knot coming undone at the dock or like the anchor slipping off the seafloor and unbeknownst to the sailors, it begins to drift into danger. And beloved, the point here of the word, the intent of the author is that this drift is slow, it's steady, it's subtle. It's usually, more often than not, even imperceptible. C.S. Lewis, in his seminal book, Screwtape Letters, when Screwtape the senior demon was writing to his junior apprentice, Wormwood, this is one of the excerpts, one of the words of wisdom that the senior demon gave to the junior demon. He said this, quote, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts end quote so beloved the point Lewis the point the demon was giving in the book the point more to the point here the author of Hebrews is giving is what he's describing here is not a sudden U-turn We we think of the kind of repentance that leads unto salvation. Repentance means we make an about face and march in the different direction. We turn from trusting ourselves, and we turn in the other direction and trust Jesus Christ. It means we make a complete about face away from our old sinful way of thinking and deeds of the flesh to the fruit of the spirit. Well, what he's talking about here is not that kind of radical turn. It's subtle. He's not talking about this kind of The deadly danger of drift is not running away from that which we have heard. It's not even walking away from it. I mean, maybe it it could be meandering away from it, uh, ambling away from it, sidling away from it. I mean, you get the point. The point is it's subtle, it's slow, but it is absolutely deadly. One author captured this deadly danger of drift with these words, quote, Drifting is the besetting sin of today. And as the metaphor suggests, it's not so much intentional as from unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor, Christ, and begin to quietly drift away. The author asks the question, what brings drifting? Well, for one thing, there's a tide of years. Many who were at one time professing fine Christians drifted away from their earlier better selves. They kept up appearances, but the years carried them far away from their early devotion. There's also the tide of familiarity with the truth. It's natural to come to regard the familiar as commonplace. There's also the danger of the tide of busyness. In today's world, the multiplicity of cares and duties can overwhelm. And then the author gives this illustration. He says, a snowflake is a tiny thing, but when the air is full of them, it can bury you. And so also The thousand cares of each day can insulate us from the stupendous excellencies of Christ, causing us to begin a deadly drift. Beloved, understand this. Going back to the original analogy of the author, the port doesn't drift from the boat. The boat drifts from the safety, security, and shelter of the harbor. In the same way the word of God doesn't drift from you or from me. We are the ones that are in danger of drift. The problem is not with the law, the problem is with the law breaker. And we can ask ourselves the question, has your prayer time, has your prayer time become more fleeting? Has your Bible study become harder? Has your gathering together to spur one another to good deeds and to receive the blessing and joy of fellowship encouragement? Has your gathering together become less important? Has sin in general or a sin in particular become easier? If the answer to any of these is the question, you begin to drift. That's the danger. That's the deadly danger. It's the age-old story of a slight change in degree that leads into theological liberalism that leads to Pentecostal sensationalism, that leads to pragmatic compromise. The list can go on. This is a story of individuals, and this is a story of institutions, of churches, of seminaries, of missionary sending agencies. We know when an individual falls, he or she never falls very far. You don't have a godly man or a godly woman walking with the Lord who just stumbles and falls into deep sin. The catastrophic failure of a significant horrific sin is the result of a bunch of smaller sins leading into it. In the same way, a church, a seminary, an organization doesn't just fall headlong into apostasy with one vote. It's a gradual process. That's what the author is bringing up. It's the recognition that a slight change in the compass can lead to disastrous navigational consequences. A mistied knot can come loose, and so the drift begins. This last weekend, I was so blessed to have all of my children here with me. Uh, Rebecca and Ryan flew for the entire weekend from California. I took Monday off to spend the day with Rebecca and Ryan and we went to a climbing gym a half mile from my house. And it was a wonderful time with Rebecca and Ryan. And so went through the initial kind of introductory overview lesson from uh, the people there. And they talk about if you're the climber, you tie the rope in your figure eight and then you strap it through your belt and then you put it through so you have five different loops and you make sure you have two fists of rope left and everything's all set. When the climber is ready to go, the call sign is dude on rock. And then if the belayer, the one that's belaying him or her, the answer is rock on dude. Be that as it may, now that we've got those spiritual things covered. But the point here, beloved, is this. You need to check the knot. If the knot is not what it should be, if there's three loops instead of five loops, the fall can be great. And the danger here is moral and spiritual laziness. It's being carried away imperceptibly by the cultural confusion of the day. It's where things begin you allow things to go from firm to fuzzy, and next thing you know, you're a heretic, or the organization is in heresy. If you'll allow a somewhat charged illustration, you may have heard the adage that you can vote your way into socialism, but you have to shoot your way out. Well, beloved, in the same way, you can drift into legalism. You can drift into liberalism. You can drift into licentiousness. You will never drift into orthodoxy. You will never drift into orthopraxy. You will never drift into right sound doctrine or just drift into right sound behavior. That is danger now for the original audience for this group of hellenistic jewish believers their temptation their danger was to drift back to their legalistic ways what is it for you and for me we all face this danger is it liberalism legalism licentiousness or something else that's why the word of god here is prevalent it is necessary for us in 18th century england a child was born robert robinson Uh, Robert Robinson's father passed away when he was a very young child as he grew up he fell into the wrong crowd and by the time he was 17 years old he was a drunkard and when he was 17 as a drunkard not drunk at the time but at the age of 17 as one far away from any element of grace and right behavior for the Lord. Robert Robinson went and heard a preaching of a man named George Whitfield, a powerful message bringing out the sinfulness of man and the righteous judgment of God on sin and the way of escape through Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone. And it pierced Robinson's heart. For three years, he couldn't get away from that. Finally, God saved him. He gave a profession of faith and trust in Christ alone by faith alone at the age of 20. He began to grow and to walk with the Lord. And God had blessed this, this uh, young man with a powerful aspect of creativity, so much so that three years later, at the age of 22, in the year 1757, he wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, with the beautiful last stanza. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Watch this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Like the hymns we sang, beautiful, rich. Now, the exact end of Robinson's story is uncertain. It's buried in the mist and fog of history. Many accounts, though, say that he himself drifted that he himself wandered from the God he once professed to love and later on in life went back to being a drunkard again. There are many accounts of one widely told story that says he was riding in a stagecoach one day, disheveled, reeking of alcohol. And there was a woman in the coach with him, and she was humming her favorite hymn, and with a heart and a desire to minister to this poor drunkard, she asked him if he was familiar with the hymn that she was humming. And the historical account says that his response was this, quote, Madam, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And if I had them, I would give a thousand worlds to enjoy that feeling again, end quote. Beloved, the danger of drift is real. The battle we wage, the battle you and I wage is against the tides of the world. It's, it's against the current of the flesh. It's against the supernatural forces of darkness. Orthodoxy and Obedience are the oars we use to fight the strong current of spiritual drift. The marriage between theology and practice will keep us sailing forward in fidelity to the God whom we love, to the Savior, to the Lord whom saved us. Turn a few pages over to chapter 6, verse 19. The author captures this well. I'll begin reading in the middle of verse 18, Hebrews 6 we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. Chapter 6, 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Beloved, that is the anchor of our soul. And we avoid the deadly danger of drift by dropping the anchor of our soul in the deep waters of the word of God. And even here, notice what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say here, by way of exhortation, labor for me. He says, listen to me. He doesn't say, work for me. He says, watch me. He says, listen and learn, look and live. Look to Christ and live, listen to Christ and learn. And by the way, right hearing, the kind of hearing that is embedded in this opening part, is far more a matter of the heart than a mere function of the ear. And that means that we ought not get lazy with our Bible. We should not neglect our prayer. We don't get lazy with our gathering together. All of these are parts of the way in which we avoid the deadly danger of drift. So the author sounds a critical warning. He follows this with a crucial question. And what he does in verse 2 through the beginning of verse 3 is he describes the catastrophic consequences of this drift. At the beginning of verse 2, he says, For, and this is a different word translated here, for as in the New American Standard was translated as for back in verse 1. But what he's saying here, the for here, it says that the application in verse 1 is going to be amplified by an explanation. So the author's oratorical imperative in verse 1 is followed by a rhetorical question, a crucial question. He says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, firmly grounded, steadfast, certain, more sure. This is the third nautical reference. This is a word unalterable that literally describes an anchor. And when he says, for if, the word if there, that is not an if as in maybe, that's an if as in definitely. You can almost understand it as saying, for since the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, firmly grounded, steadfast, and certain. And we will also ask, what does he mean by the word spoken through angels? Now, as we go through the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we hear many words spoken by angels. We see Gabriel and other angels that come as a messenger of God with a message for people. But I think when we look at the context here in Hebrews at a macro level, and especially right here in the contrast, he's specifically talking about the law. He's talking about the Mosaic Covenant, the one biblical covenant that is a conditional covenant, the one biblical covenant where God said, if you do this, then I will do that. And we do know that the law, the Mosaic covenant, was ordained, or wasn't, so it wasn't ordained, it was led by, well, actually, it was ordained by angels, it was ministered by angels. For example, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, you read the words, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. That's the way the New American Standard reads it. In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was what the Hellenistic Jewish audience, the original audience, they had the the Greek translation. In the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, the final clause is, at his right hand there were angels with him. Or we can think of the godly martyr Stephen. Right before Stephen was murdered and right before he was getting ready to go and enter into the presence of his Lord, in Acts 7, verse 53, Stephen said the law as ordained by angels. Or the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians 3.19, also said the law was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. So what he's talking about here is the old covenant and in contrast to the new covenant, to the one that Christ bought. But in any event, he says, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. Now, in Scripture, there are many different words in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe sin. The words that the author brings out here basically describes the sins of commission—that's the transgression, that's crossing the line that God says, "Thou shalt not cross that line." And the sins of omission, the sins of disobedience of not doing what God commands us to do and both of these are deserving of the just recompense of the righteous judgment of God that's what for example God told the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 God said to them I have set before you life and death the blessing and the curse so choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants beloved in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in all of the Bible, the theme is obey and live, disobey and die. Now, we understand that we can't obey the law. That's where Christ comes in. But even as new creatures in Christ Jesus, there is life in obedience in observing what God commands us. And there is, can even be death. Providentially speaking, not eternal death, but live, oh, excuse me, obey and live, disobey and die is a central theme of Scripture. Now, what the author uses here in Hebrews 2, verse, or, yeah, Hebrews 2, verse 2 and 3, is he goes from the lesser to the greater. This was a common argument, a common rhetorical method, a common method of argumentation for both rabbinical circles and Hellenistic circles, to go from something that is true and well-known lesser to the greater, to make the lesser amplify the greater. And what he's saying here is, since that was true then, that just recompense was due them with the gift of the law, how much more so will the just recompense be with the gift of the gospel. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we're unconcerned with so great a salvation, if we care nothing about so great a salvation, if we are paying it no attention. And what he's saying is since they in the Old Testament didn't escape when they disobeyed the law, how could we possibly hope to escape when we disobey the gospel? turn over a few more pages chapter 10 look at verses 28 and 29 the author will again bring this up with different words Hebrews 10 verse 28 he says anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses verse 29 how much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. So when the author in verse 3 of chapter 2 says, How shall we escape so great a salvation? The simple, obvious-to-all answer to everyone is we can't. We won't. We can't escape that. There is no escape. There is no hope. There's no forgiveness. There remains no sacrifice for one who would neglect and desert so great a salvation. It's interesting because many times you may have heard this before. People, usually unsaved people, but maybe even confused say people, have some kind of idea that, well, the God of the Old Testament was a judging God. But the God of the New Testament is, is more merciful that's flat out not true. It's the same God, same judgment all the way through. However, if we are to even approach it from the perspective here, in terms of the judgment, actually the judgment in the New Testament is more severe than the judgment in the Old Testament because the greater the light, the more revelation, the severer, the more severe the judgment. You might be familiar with the story of Edmund Dante and his time in the horrific prison Chateau d'Eve. Uh, This is under the banner of the story, the Count of Monte Cristo. He was an innocent man who was unjustly imprisoned for 14 years. Eventually, he was able to find a way of escape. But beloved, the point is, and you can think of other horrific islands, Devil's Island and others as well. Maybe people, rare exceptions can escape. Sometimes they can't, but the Author's point here is there is no escape. You can't dig under, there's not a wall you can dig under. There's not a wall you can climb over. There's not a guard to be bribed to escape such a great salvation when you are neglecting it. And by the way, the Chateau d'If is a luxury hotel compared to hell. And would we expect the Count of Monte Cristo to want to go back and become a resident of Chateau d'If? That's the author's point here. Why would you go back to that system? Why would you go back to the bondage of the fetters of a man-made system rather than the grace of God? Beloved, dear friend, the gospel is good news for those who trust in Christ alone by faith alone, for those who repent of their sin. The gospel is terrible news to those who don't because the killing of the body is nothing compared to to the punishment of the body and soul in everlasting hell. And that was Christ's message in Luke chapter 12 in the first few verses. If we would not die in our sins, then we must not live in our sins. That's the bad news. That's the terrible news. That's the warning. The good news is Draw your eyes back to those words. So great a salvation. And in fact, in the first three verses, the author uses this technique, this he- Hebrew technique he's been using throughout of having these concentric circles from the beginning of, chapter, beginning of verse one and the end of chapter three and then in concentric circles, folks in all the way to the center point, the main theme of the first three verses. So great a salvation. He's saying there is a way of escape, there is a way of pardon, there is a way of salvation, there is an entryway into the eternal bliss and joy of heaven in the presence of God forever and ever. It's the same salvation, the last verse of chapter 1 Verse 14, for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Or just a few verses later, verse 10, here in chapter 2, speaking of Jesus who is the author of our salvation. But beloved, the point the author's making right here is because you and I were great sinners. We need a great Savior. We need a great salvation. And even as the song we were singing before, talking about the greatness of our position in Christ. Beloved, our salvation is great because it's a great victory. It's a great forgiveness. It's a great cleansing. It's a great deliverance, even from the fear of death and the power of Satan. We'll see later on in chapter 2. So the author sounds a critical warning. He asks a crucial question. Finally, he gives a credible confirmation. The great salvation that we just read of that was at the centerpiece of the first three verses was announced and it is confirmed at the end of verse three. It was confirmed to us. It was confirmed. And what he brings out here at the end of verse three and verse four are four witnesses to this great confirmation. The first witness is the messianic witness. And this brings back to the beginning topic, the main topic through the whole book. Jesus Christ, he is the messenger of eternal life and he is the message of eternal life. He is the preacher of God's message and the message itself. He is the source of eternal life and he is the substance of eternal life. That's why it says, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord. And the Lord here, Kyrios, that's Jesus, that's the the son of chapter 1. He is the superior message and the superior messenger. He is the decisive, sure, and final word. He's spoken finally and supremely. And he spoke, God has spoken something better than in person. You may remember in chapter 1, he has spoken in son. And so when he says it was first spoken through the Lord, it's talking about the ministry and the life and the teaching and the compassion of Christ. In Luke 19, verse 10, we read that Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to what? To seek and to save that which is lost. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what was first spoken through the Lord. And by the way, what we have here is even this contrast from the lesser to the greater. We have first God's angel-mediated word. This is God's son-mediated word. He's saying declared by the angels and declared by the Lord, meaning the son. So the first witness is a messianic witness. The second witness is an apostolic witness. Witness. We continue, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. This is the first generation of believers that were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses, especially the apostles. They were earwitnesses and eyewitnesses of the teaching, deeds, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And the apostles do this with divine commission and divine authority. We see that throughout the New Testament. And just a note here, uh, we, the, the author of Hebrews does not identify himself. We cover this in the opening introduction. When we look at this incredible sermonic epistle, we look at the style, the grammar, the vocabulary, and that by itself dictates there's no way the Apostle Paul wrote this but this verse right here is the final end word this is the absolute slam dunk that the apostle paul didn't write this because the author groups himself in this second generation of believers didn't personally hear or see christ but are relying on the apostolic witness of those in the first generation who did so there's a messianic witness apostolic witness a third witness hang with me here, is a dynamic witness. Now, the dynamic I'm talking about here is a powerful witness. He says, verse four, or yeah, beginning of verse four, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles. Literally by various miracles. Powers by various dunamis, from which we get the word dynamic. So this is the powerful witness of signs, wonders, and miracles that accompanied God giving the new revelation through Christ and through the apostles. Now, this verse here, Hebrews two three, is a companion passage with Second Corinthians twelve twelve. Second Corinthians twelve twelve, the apostle Paul wrote these words. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles, speaking in the past. Same thing here. The signs, wonders, and various miracles in Hebrews 2.3 were performed, were confirmed in the past. When we look at. Signs, wonders, and miracles in the New Testament, we only see them being spoken of as though they were still happening in the three earliest epistles, in Galatians, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. The later epistles don't even mention sign, wonders, and miracles except Hebrews and 2 Corinthians where they speak of it as in the past. Or in 2 Thessalonians where they're talking about false signs and wonders. Now, why is this? Why did God do it that way that only the early epistles? And it is because, beloved, namely this. In Scripture, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, signs, wonders, and miracles were never commonplace. They only occurred in three distinct periods. Moses and Joshua, Elisha and Elisha, and Christ and the apostles. And they correspond to the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, and then the New Testament. And the three distinct, definitive, unquestionable purposes for signs and wonders were to indicate new revelation is coming, to authenticate the messenger, and to authenticate the message. A great passage in the Old Testament that helps us understand this is 1 Kings 17.24. After Elijah raised the woman's son from the dead, the woman said this. Again, 1 Kings 17.24. The woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. That's the authentication of the messenger. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. That's the authentication of the message. So, beloved, the whole point here is that's why I'm making a point here to understand that this passage in Hebrews speaks of them in the past tense. And as we apply that today, if miracles are to be expected, then there's really nothing miraculous about them. If miracles are ordinary, they lose their significance. They lose their sign pointing to the messenger, pointing to the message, and pointing to the revelation of God. So, messianic apostolic dynamic the fourth witness and again hang with me with my word here is the charismatic witness now i'm not using the word charismatic the way we would normally understand it in 21st century western christianity i'm using charismatic more to the root meaning of charisma and the gifts of the holy spirit and what we see here at the end of verse four is the diversity and the sovereignty of the gifts of God in this case and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit by the divisions the distributions of the Holy Spirit when we look at gifts in the New Testament there are the su- supernatural revelatory gifts that were again attesting to the fact that revelation was coming and to the authentication and there's the ongoing gifts So we can look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. When we combine the list, there's maybe 19 or 20 different gifts. And what we understand is for the gifts that continue, the non-supernatural revelatory gifts, each one of us is an individual masterpiece, painted, crafted, sculpted, shaped by God with some greater measures of mercy. Some have greater measures of evangelism. Some have greater measures of teaching. Some have greater measures of giving. But we understand we are all commanded by God to be engaged in all of these ministries. And each one of us, you are an individual masterpiece painted by God. Some more muted colors. some more vibrant, some more dominant And beloved, understand this, the value of your giftedness, of your unique blending of these gifts is not determined by the giftedness. It's by your use of it, by your stewardship of what God has given you, how God has made you. So, that's the diversity of the gifts. And then at the very end, there's God's sovereignty. Look at what it says, according to his own will. So, the Spirit here directs the quantity, the quality, and the shape of the gift. He parcels out what is good for the body, deliberately, purposely, and individually. Beloved, going back to the main point here, which is the confirmation. This is the word of God. This is the dire warning And this is the great salvation. It was announced by angels and by Jesus. It was confirmed and testified by God himself. Therefore, you and I don't need to prove it. It's already been confirmed. We just need to preach it, explain it. We need to help come alongside our children, our neighbor, our friend, our brother and sister in Christ to help them understand it and apply it and own it. On November 26, 2017, R.C. Sproul preached a sermon on Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. His last words in that sermon were these. I pray with all my heart that God will awaken each one of us today to the sweetness, the loveliness, the glory of the gospel declared by Christ, end quote. Those were his last words in that sermon 18 days later. R.C. Sproul went home to be with the Lord. Those were the last words he ever preached. Beloved, may those words be our heart, to be awakened to the sweetness, the loveliness of the glory of the gospel declared by Christ. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer in preparation for observing communion. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love, for the great salvation. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for the warnings that we all need. Lord, help us to be mindful of ourselves, to be careful, to not allow ourselves to begin to drift. Thank you for the body of Christ and the blessing and the joy of ministering and loving and exhorting and encouraging and rebuking one another in this great endeavor for your glory and for our joy and Lord Jesus even now as we approach your communion table we remember the great price you paid on our behalf which is at the center of this great salvation it is for your glory and for your honor Lord Jesus that we pray and that we do this thing amen